following program is brought to you by your friends at Podcast One. Can your faith inform your financial values? The short answer, yes. At Thrivent, we help millions of Christians be wise with money with advice, insurance, banking, investments, and generosity. Visit Thrivent.com. Thrivent, be wise with money. My name is Matt Perez. My name is Satchel Drakes. And this is Overworld, where we try to be curious, fail at being smart, and talk about video games at the intersection of art, society, and other stuff. Hey, Matt. Hey, Satchel. How's it going? Pretty good. You? Doing all right. So I have a question for you. Go for it. All right. How, do you like know what goes into like level design and whatnot? Um, a little bit. Yeah. So I mean, there are a couple of things that come to mind for me. In between, incredibly amateur hour, like uh, what do you call it? Game jams. Oh and yeah. And then like listening to like little interviews or like indie game the movie. It seems like what goes into it, it's definitely visually guided. It's kind of mm-hmm. visually oriented. And there's definitely a spectrum because it depends whether you're doing a platformer or a top-down or whatever. Um, but it's essentially a visually oriented means of creating an environment and a challenge of sorts for a player, maybe. That's kind of my surface-level understanding. Mm-hmm. How close am I? I think you're pretty on there. Like, it's that weird, like, on one hand, you have to, in a way, direct a player without holding their hand, right? And then the other hand, it's, like, creating this place that you actually want to, like, be in for hours on end, right? Like, Right, yeah. So, I, it's the thing, like, I, I think that first part where you're directing the player, that seems really significant, doesn't it? Like you are the person that's guiding them, in a sense, because of how you have set up the environment. Yes, I agree. Like, that whole idea of an artist holding your hand through something without explicitly or overtly doing it is, like, really cool. Yeah. It's one of those things where, I don't know, a comparison I would make in knowing a little bit about it is, and maybe I'm totally off base, I don't know, but... I guess, like, when you look at, like, a film that came out, like, Star Wars, you're like, oh, it's Ryan Johnson. Ryan Johnson made that film kind of thing. But Uh, Yeah, and breaking away for a moment to thank Amika Insurance and LifeLock for supporting the Forbes Overworld podcast. More about these sponsors um, later in the show. ...story about how his wife saved it in editing, which seems really significant. Like, you saved an entire film in the editing bay. And people really, like, when you go to, like, the Oscars and stuff, the editing is not, like, a significant portion, right? Like, yeah, it's like you're the hidden creator and, like, an editor, and I think it extends to, like, a level designer. Though they may, like, not be in the purview, though they may not get the recognition, they're incredibly important to how a story is paced, how it's told, all these little details, even the tone, because they have control of like just like how it looks and the lighting and like the color and everything. That seems very big, and we I think overlook it a lot. That makes sense. I mean, like as a speaking as a commercial filmmaker, oftentimes it feels like I can capture a bunch of things, and maybe not everything is exactly how I want it to be. But there's sort of like this grace that you can afford it over time because you realize just how much power you have. Mm-hmm. By cutting around things, by cutting quickly to things, there is a lot of freedom. So what you're saying kind of – it makes a lot of sense. 
Yeah. I guess I know from, you know, looking at talks about game design um, or about level design, even like especially in a 3D space, the little tricks you do are kind of like a film where if you wanted to lead someone out of a tunnel, like you create a shape that they would walk towards, like a circular shape where, you know, you want to go to that one light area. And if you're, Mm. you know, I guess like games like Dishonored and like Half-Life, these are games where... You know, you're, you know, the the there's not really any cinematic moments. It's not really cutting away. You're always kind of in the character's head, looking around on your own. But they want to like portray like a story event. It's like how do you? I, I think an example in Dishonored, there's a, a a um a scene where you walk out into an alleyway and a train comes up over you and drops off. A ton of bodies, basically. But it's like, how do you direct the player to stand where they want you, to, where where you want them to stand, and also bring their eyes up to the level of seeing this event occur in front of them without ever taking control away from the player? I think that's all done through level designs. Like, okay, we have all these assets, we have this direction of like we want to show this story moment. How do we? best portray it and how do we make sure the player doesn't miss it and they realize the significance of what they're seeing that seems substantial and very difficult it does and it it also kind of shines light on just how uh how powerful it is that you can highlight something as intensely or as subtly as you want in order to kind of fold time Mm -hmm. and like have and sort of have full control over how how long it might take to like progress a story or move something forward. Mm-hmm. Um, like that makes me think about even things like just like Zelda Skyward Sword, which even though the title, I don't know if it's actually really polarizing. There's definitely like a deep corner of the internet that gets very polarized about mm-hmm. it. But, you know, one of the ways, sort of a traditional way of progressing like hints and treasures was like if there's a wall and you have to get through it, like they put like a big old crack on it. So that you know to put a bomb next to it and blow it up and move to the next space, you know, like mm-hmm. it's almost like thinking theoretically you could put a crack on it and you could you could not put a crack on it at all. Right. And you could have them try and see what happens. You could put a crack on it. You can make it glow. You can make it pulse. You can make you can use sound. You can you can drive how long or short it takes and the reward and the feelings around every step of a story. Um just through the way that you like design a level. Yeah. It is funny like I guess we have I feel I just read Polygon's review about Player Unknown Battlegrounds and them describing the environment whether the I'm sure the developers intended this but it's like the idea of like a door takes on a kind of different um dimension within this game because you have 100 players running around like a closed door can mean many things. It can mean maybe it's not looted at all, but it could be someone setting a trap for you. If you see a door open, then you're like, someone has been here. Whether they're still in there, whether it's already been looted and I can move on, it's like that little asset takes on a different um, uh, dimension because of you know just how, how the player moves through the through the atmosphere. But it's also, yeah. I know uh, one I think we both really enjoy is Gone Home. And Gone Home yeah. is um, of a, I guess, I don't know if it's a genre. I call them like exploratory games, but, you know, people call them walking simulators because 
you know, right. the action. I call it I call it a first person experience. Yes, that sounds less derogatory than walking simulator, you know. Yeah. Um, but I think Gone Home, like there there are definitely are games where it does just feel like you're just walking around a space that there's really nothing in it. But that game definitely had a mood and a tension while you're walking through that space and I think it's because of the you know the level design like it was Steve Gaynor came from that kind of background of creating levels for BioShock and you know that's a game where it's kind of messing with your expectations of maybe this is a scary game maybe there's something like really wrong is going on but definitely like how they've set up you know the environments like the TV being like on but um you know having t- like a weather alert on it um and how you walk down some of these older hallways and the creeks around you like there's definitely like a pace and tension as you're moving through a game that's otherwise just telling you know a straightforward story and then you're just finding little items throughout the throughout the level and i think that it has a lot to do with just how they set up the space and they set up the atmosphere for you to like move through it i don't know if does that make sense to you yes that makes full sense yeah yeah so I there I think there's like there's got to be like certain t- theories that we're overlooking a little bit like maybe architectural theories. And yeah, I feel like there's like a chunk like I just feel so misinformed even speculating on what goes into it because mm-hmm. there's so much to be said not even about like creating a good puzzle or a good maze or a good challenge, but just about what goes into creating a space, a believable space, the scale of the space. If it's like photorealistic, supposed to be kind of true to life. Mm-hmm. I feel like there's a lot that's missing. Yeah. And I know like for something like Gone Home, you definitely feel like I've been in this situation before where you're walking down a hallway and feel a little afraid, even though there's nothing yeah. for you to be afraid of. And I'm like really interested in like how that correlates with like real life. So, yeah. We're gonna we're gonna talk to uh, Jose Sanchez. He's the assistant professor at the USC School of Architecture, and he's also a big I'm fan so of video games. So it works out. I'm into it. Let's talk to him. And we'll be right back after this quick break. Doing a lot of holiday shopping from your mobile device, retailers expect 54% of holiday shoppers to visit their sites from mobile devices. Scammers see this as an opportunity to steal your credit card information and other personal data by distributing phony retail apps. Be cautious and only download apps from reputable app stores and read the reviews for any complaints about malware. One in four people have experienced identity theft. If you're only monitoring your credit, your identity can still be stolen in ways you may not detect. Thieves could sell your information on the dark web or get an online payday loan in your name. LifeLock detects a wide range of identity threats. If you have a problem, U.S.-based restoration specialists will work to fix it. No one can prevent all identity theft or monitor all transactions at all businesses. LifeLock can uncover threats that you might miss. Join now and get 10% off with promo code Forbes. Call 1-800-LIFELOCK or go to LifeLock.com and use promo code Forbes. That's Forbes to save 10% now. Jose, thanks for uh, talking with us today. Yeah, nice to meet you. Yeah. Uh, so can you talk a little bit about like architecture in a, in a general sense? Like if you were to design a building, are you thinking about its unique aesthetics, like how it fits with the surrounding area, how you move about the space as a pedestrian? Like what does the planning phase for you look like? Sure. Um, well, architecture uh, has a series of considerations and it's usually a discipline that um, requires a series of uh, specialities, right? So once you get a site or a client, basically, you have requirements specific to the client. Uh, what is the program of the building? What are the usage of, of the spaces? Also, you have requirements from the site, meaning like um, what are the kind of amenities or, or the different kind of uh, conditions around the site? 
um, regulation as well. The city would require that you have, let's say, a certain number of parkings, certain number of evacuations, all sorts of, of different kind of regulations for safety. And then you have things like energy, right? Like you have things like um, what is the orientation of the building? How do you kind of use the best uh, light and also the best amount of uh, energy from the sun potentially uh, for, for different purposes? So there's a series of, and this is just really starting to dig into some of the issues. I mean, you have to do with structure as well and how the building doesn't collapse basically under the conditions of, of the particular location in which you're set. So, so it's a very multidisciplinary profession that requires really kind of a, uh, I would say like a systems approach, right? You have to really start thinking of all these layers of complexity and how do you start breaking them apart um, one at a time. Mm -hmm. How do uh, like aesthetics work into that? Like, um, do you have to find a balance between wanting it to look unique or like part of, you know, the overall location or is it, do you have to also just like more so consider the function of the building? So, one of the things that uh, happens a lot with architecture is that you have these architectural competitions, right? Like you have a client that says, well, I want to do a building, but I want to do that building with, I'm, I'm not sure what I want, right? Like, so it would call a series of, of, of practices or offices that would suggest their different kind of approach. So the aesthetics plays a big role. I mean, the architects really kind of present their vision for the building. And as much as they have to kind of comply with a series of things that they work like a checklist, right? Like everybody needs to comply with the mandatory things, but aesthetics really works as, as the kind of additional contribution that an architect can make to make the, the building stand in a different way. In many cases, it becomes the brand of, of an architect or a firm. Uh, and in many cases, uh, it also has to do with like following certain guidelines from the city or going against some of the guidelines just to create contrast and some form of icon in a way. Do you see, like, uh, I guess, like, touching on gaming, do you see, like, parallels between architecture and, like, designing a level where, uh, like, how you move like, through space and um, not just a matter of adapting a certain style of architecture, like, brutalist or something like that. It's more so how you actually, like, move through a space. Um, do you see any parallels between them? Oh, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that you get taught instantly uh, as soon as you join architecture school is that the building, it's all about space. It's more than the the physical uh, matter, right? Like you're not really looking at necessarily at the object and the walls, but rather you're looking at how space is configured. So how do you move around space? What are your kind of perspectives or what are the, sometimes space could be compressed or can they could be much more open. So you're basically really kind of looking at the void, basically, the, the empty space within a building. And in game design, uh, you have a similar idea, right? Like you have, um, you're designing kind of a sequence of experiences and those are kind of uh, laid out um, through space. And, and it's really important that those are not just monotone. They're not always the same. They're just kind of having a certain diversity of emotions or a certain experiences that the player would actually also engage with. So of building approach something like SimCity, games also kind of have a correlation of how architecture slowly builds up um, different basically simulation entities that could actually be designed simultaneously. That's really fascinating. Do, do you find it more or less common that uh, the aesthetics or the architectural style or period of whatever you're building will influence the functional, practical layout of how a level will be designed? Like, for example, if it's like, okay, so I'm, I know that I'm working within the Art Deco period and all the architecture that follows that, like, that's going to inform 
how like the level overall is designed beyond just like the skin of like how it looks. Does that sort of make sense? No, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so, for instance, one of the one of the big architecture firms today, uh, very famous architect, is uh, Saha Hadid, who passed away, and she um, has a, a formal style that is very fluid. It's, the forms are very kind of curvy, and they kind of uh, they just create these kind of spaces that are kind of always kind of blending into one another, right? So you imagine that the way you transition through space. It's very different if you would have much more of a classical building or a modernist building that that kind of demarcates space in a very kind of uh, in, in a very clear partition where you're in one space and then you transition to another one and there's kind of a big distinction between those two. Uh, in a much more perhaps contemporary space, you're kind of fluidly transitioning between one space and another one and and having more of a kind of yeah a fluid transition. I think that's kind of a way of describing it. But but again. Um, there's different architects today that are kind of exploring different areas and, and, and those really kind of create atmospheres that are kind of always compelling um, to bring into a game world or in a VR space because you can really sense those conditions to, with, with today's games engines. You, you can really kind of uh, simulate all those conditions and, and forecast what you would actually be able to build in the future. In your own work, do you have any kind of like favorites like i don't know either favorite kinds of spaces to work with or favorite movements to reference yeah i mean in a way my practice is it's it's slightly kind of a weird animal right because i'm i'm trained as an architect and i started doing game design um with the project blockhood right uh but i haven't stopped doing kind of architectural research and also uh teaching uh with students so we explore a lot with students the an idea of architecture that is very atmospheric, but it's atmospheric in achieved through materials, right? So there's uh, architects like Thomas Heatherwick in London or Kengo Kuma in Japan, which are able to kind of create these beautiful atmospheres of materials just by aggregating many, many different elements in, in particular arrangements and patterns. So I, I'm very compelled to kind of think of how do you build this this these pieces of architecture. How do you create these architectures from the bottom up? And games like Minecraft, for instance, have been really conducive to to engage a large audience to build and design their own buildings, right? And how can you upgrade that, that kind of energy and that kind of intelligence towards more sophisticated buildings? And I think that there is um, a lot of a lot of kind of possible design um, that could come from players really kind of engaging simple tool sets in, in, a, in a video game to actually design. Are you, are you talking about like the gateway drug from like Minecraft to like Cinema 4D or something like Blender or? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that, uh, I mean, there's software like SketchUp that uh, have great platforms where people can just upload their designs. Um, but I think that game yeah. engines are kind of miles away from what uh, what these softwares are doing. They're just creating these representations that are just very kind of non-immersive yet, right? Like in, in a video game, you actually can create a, a simulation that is incredibly immersive. You can feel the materials, the textures, and and the space in a very different way. So I think that we're going to be seeing much more of that uh, gaming platform creating content and allowing players to to create very compelling environments. Yeah, I know you it's, uh, You mentioned uh, the game you had created, Blockhood, and that's... It's a game about creating architecture and like keeping in mind all the different systems um, that go into you know placing a building in the middle of you know a city or right and um, like right. 
so you chose to make that as a game. Can you talk about uh, why you felt that was the best way to convey um, this teaching? Yeah, absolutely. I think that, um, I mean, I, I personally, I'm a gamer. I, I grew up playing games. So I kind of was very, very close to the to the medium of games. And I thought it was a great vehicle to engage uh, an audience that often it's not dealing with architectural issues. I mean, you have great games like SimCity or City Skylines, um, but those are not coming necessarily from architects. Um, so I thought that jumping in the scene, like connecting my experience of architecture with uh, my own growing interest in developing video games and, and, and connecting those two, I thought of making a city building simulator, but at the level of the neighborhood, right? So you could actually work within a neighborhood and simulate uh, the ecology of the neighborhood as opposed to the economy, which is usually the the analogy that things like SimCity use, right? Like you're dealing with taxes and, and money in a way. And, and in this case, you're actually dealing with the ecology of the city. So I think that I use many of the mechanisms that were already there um, from the gaming um, uh, side, but also bringing many architectural ideas to kind of start thinking of, uh, of the neighborhood in a systemic way that is uh, slightly different and much more coming from an architectural perspective. And we'll be right back after this quick break. The support for Overworld comes from Amica Insurance. We're living in the age of the discerning shopper when savvy consumers increasingly favor brands that value authenticity, ethics, and a great shopping experience. Mika is committed to being a company people trust. Visit meetamika.com slash Forbes and find out why 95% of Amika customers with combined auto and home policies stay with them. One more time, that's meetamika.com slash Forbes to find out more about Amika Insurance. At Farmers Insurance, we know a roof can withstand a lot. One exception being an airborne car. Seen it, covered it. Click for more. We are farmers. Bum, 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 bum. Underwritten by Farmers Truck Fire Insurance Exchanges and Affiliates. Products not available in every state. To backtrack just a little bit, um, we're talking about atmosphere and creating a mood. Like, um, is that something, I guess, when I'm thinking about like level design, I'm thinking the level designer themselves oftentimes is trying to direct your eye and like direct you through a space and also try to convey a certain mood. Is that... Um, does it for like architecture and creating like a, a space? Does it get to that type of level of like maybe as a pedestrian walks through this, I want to direct their eye towards this, and maybe they'll you know for a doorway, maybe there's a certain you know um, jam that you use that will like invite someone toward it. You know, is that something that you keep in mind when uh, building these spaces? Yeah, well, absolutely. I mean, there's there's different schools of thought in architecture, and I think that that's definitely there's certain people that definitely believe that that's that's possible in a way, like conduce the or condition an individual to kind of uh, guide them through space in a way. The all the kind of um, meaning that space would have beyond just just creating a building, right? So there would be particular lines and projections that would direct your eyes, or or projections and, and elements that would actually create us creating perspectives. Um, there's another group of architects that would not necessarily look at that, at those uh, ideas, right? Like it hasn't been necessarily proven. I think that in, in in game, it's very, very important that you have like, let's say in journey, right? Like you start the game and you can see uh, your objective at the beginning and it really kind of create a compass, right? Um, but this is an issue that for instance, we're starting to experience in VR. Like once you cannot frame the view necessarily, and the player can actually look in any direction. It's very difficult to kind of guide the player to a specific thing. Um, it's become because the player can actually do whatever, right? Like can look in any direction. So, 
some of those techniques uh, maybe are less effective in architecture because you're always kind of considering a myriad of users, all of them experiencing the building in many different directions. So a framing for sure, uh, it's, it's something important and we kind of work with that constantly, but it's not the kind of uh, almost uh, engineering the, the navigation of a, of a user um, sometimes need to be uh, not so obsessive, I guess, uh, as, a, as a task. And also you mentioned atmosphere. That's something I know personally in games or in general, like I really am like fixated on like atmosphere and the how, how something feels. And that's definitely something that connects to me. Like I remember like my favorite games usually have like a very strong quote unquote atmosphere. It's like a very amorphous word or concept but is yeah. that is there like a it certain... captures so much that like you can't really quantify right yes like, like, like it, honestly it's kind of interesting thinking about atmosphere feels like such a big deal because and frankly i don't i don't really hear too many people talk about it exclusively but oftentimes i won't even pull the trigger on purchasing a game like participating in the experience if like the trailer doesn't contain an atmosphere that makes me feel something strong, you know? Right. Yeah. Is there a certain, like, I don't know, like a, like um, a school of thought behind that or science or anything of that nature? Um, well, I, I, I'm not I, – I wouldn't say I'm an expert in that extent. Um, <laughs> but I definitely think that um, game engines today have been able to start addressing atmosphere in a way in which we haven't been able to see before. Right, like the amount of particle physics, the amount of um, uh, different lens effects, and the color grading, and the amount of kind of elements that are able to to kind of start bringing us into these worlds are not just the kind of the planes and the textures that we had before, right? Um, also, things like reflections, things of like the the way something feels wet, for instance, right? So all these conditions, and even like the sense of sound, like three dimensional sound, and and being able to get close to something and understand that your steps are actually kind of changing the way you, like the the echo in the room, right? Things like that. They're really kind of contributing to a sense of immersion. Um, so I'm incredibly excited to jump into these, these uh, game engines, right? Like softwares that we architects would never use before um, because they're contributing to understand space in the way we actually understand the real world, right? Like the architecture, you often have to build a model. Um, or really kind of experience the materials uh, physically to kind of have a sense of what they can actually do. And now we're actually being able to simulate them. So I think that that gap is being breached and, and broken, if you want, um, by this convergence of disciplines, right, through a particular software, they're, they're incredibly uh, disruptive to kind of change the way the discipline is being um, thought and also how games as well will have a, an influx of, of architects and other kind of uh, designers that are actually coming from all sorts of different places with different experiences and perhaps will contribute to for making games more interesting as well. That's pretty great. You know, something that I'm kind of curious to know, um, as somebody who kind of comes from an architecture background, one thing I'm curious to know in really the fullest fidelity that you feel comfortable, because obviously you don't want to slander somebody who's doing what you do and like they love it a lot. But I'm curious to know, like coming from a more analog environment, a more analog kind of like school of thought, what kind of things that you glean inspiration from from architecture do you feel are sort of lost by somebody who just jumps straight in, you know, on a computer and 
and starts putting together, starts starts designing for games. Uh, what, what are some things that maybe you wish game designers who are strictly game designers would consider more about space, would consider more about the more sort of traditional or fundamental things that you came into that field with from your background in architecture? Right. Well, I mean, one of the criticisms that I've had always for games, and, and it, it, in some extent it kind of projects as well to other medium, like movies in some degree, is that we kind of keep on seeing these these tropes or these, these particular kind of trends. If you want to do something sci-fi, um, there's kind of an aesthetic of something sci-fi already, right? It's kind of pre-established and, and you look at the way kind of metallic gates and things like that work. If you want to mm. do something with this fantasy, right? You know that you're going to have like the medieval or like... Die cuts and everything. Kind of <laughs> style. And in architecture, um, we kind of don't have that, right? Like I think that there is certain certain styles, historic styles, like you mentioned, brutalism or modernism, or, or different historic styles, but everybody that is an architect today is mostly designing contemporary buildings, uh, which in themselves I think are a great resource for game designers to to look at because they're incredibly different and they're incredibly new. They they are all trying to kind of escape a convention. I did mention one architect like Saha, and and she has developed a particular style, but because she has a style, it pushes other architects to look in different directions, right? So. We're always trying to kind of create a weird new kind of aesthetic um, that is fresh and it creates a new sense of space. But it definitely we kind of reject a lot as architects to to fall into kind of traditions of let's say we want to make this look sci-fi, right? Or or sci-fi in a traditional way. If an architect would do a sci-fi building, I think it would really try to make it something fresh and new, something that it really looks like something you've never seen, right? Um, so. I think that that architectural perspective has been brought into games in some degree because many architects have been hired by by these companies, especially the larger AAA games, to start bringing some of these ideas and, and participating in the environmental and concept uh, design. So I think I think that that's pretty great. Um, so so I really would like to see more weird worlds, you know, worlds that are not just the kind of conventions that we have established over the years, but rather kind of incredibly new ones. And, and yeah, I think. Very excited, both as an architect, but also as a, as a player. It seems like a, a two, like, at one end, it's like uh, architects could use these new systems to, like, experiment and, and do something very wild, like, to make these, like, absurdist almost worlds. And then on the other end, like, level designers can see um, what architects are doing today and take that as influence as opposed to what's been traditionally done so it's like a I, that's what it seemed like to me like a back and forth kind of thing yeah no absolutely i think that i being also in university i see many many disciplines converging um to these kind of game engines to these gaming platforms so there's kind of a beautiful moment happening right now where you're finding people that are coming from sound design or you're coming from cinema and you're coming from architecture and suddenly we're all using the same software right and we're kind of able to talk to each other in a different way and we're able to kind of uh, collaborate in a way in which was, I mean, it was possible for sure, but like it, we, we had to kind of create a leap towards another field. And, and suddenly we're all being able to kind of create experiences in, in these kind of real-time engines that are kind of emulating um, virtual spaces. So, so I think that's a very exciting time to, to be in any of these disciplines and really collaborate more. Just like to wrap up, what are some um, games that maybe jump out to you 
that really take in mind certain architectural styles. Like I know, uh, like a very often brought up case is like Halo. I think they actually had architects mm-hmm. on the project uh, to create that those worlds. Are there other uh, big games that uh, pop out to you? Well, um, as, as we were talking before, maybe more than the styles themselves, it's the kind of the, the spatial, like as you navigate, like the spatial layouts, there's some games that are incredible, really. For instance, the Uncharted series, especially the latest Uncharted, it has kind of a three-dimensional level design that is incredibly complex and interesting, um, I think. Um, also the sense of scale. Um, other games like even Dark Souls have like an incredible um, three-dimensional layout and puzzle uh, design that you're basically always going back and opening shortcuts and, and it requires kind of a, uh, a three-dimensional map that I think it's really, really sophisticated. So I, I really like those, those games to kind of, when I play them, I, I'm really looking at the architecture and thinking, oh, that was pretty clever how they kind of combined um, this loop in the, in the narrative of the story, but also kind of making these, these kind of relations very three-dimensionally. Often when I get a, a game that is very flat, um, and you're kind of just kind of getting, um, over and over and over the same content, uh, it seems that it's not compelling. But when you're discovering and you're creating this kind of mental map of the architecture in your brain, as you're navigating the space, I think that that's usually uh, some of the most advanced um, examples of game de- game design in that extent. Yeah, I I love Dark Souls as an example because it is like a windy maze that like I could tell you I haven't played it in a year or so like. I can tell you exactly how to navigate from like one area to another, but it also has that like amazing melding of different styles where suddenly you're in like this completely different space and it feels like almost magical when it happens. And I don't, it's like, it is uh, how they achieve that is beyond me, but uh, it is like, I'd love that as an example. This was uh, really great. Jose, um, was there anything else you'd like to add? No, I mean, I, I guess uh, maybe share uh, with the audience. I mean, the, we have uh, a new game that we're working on. We're just, I mean, we haven't announced it or launched it yet. So some of these ideas, I think that they're going to really kind of be fleshed out in, in some of the new projects that, that the studio is working on. So hopefully look forward for a plethora project um, that we're going to have a new game coming out this year going to be pretty exciting right absolutely that is exciting well thank you thank you so much for uh talking with us this is like really fascinating likewise that's it for this episode of world thanks for listening i'm matt perez and i'm satchel drakes if you'd like to get in touch with us please reach us at overworld at podcast one that's o-n-e dot com and also you can reach us on twitter my handle is at satchel drakes that's satchel like a bag with an extra l and mine is matt ryan perez thanks for listening take care Two thousand seventeen was a great year for us here at Podcast One, and we hope it was a great year for you. We launched new shows with Caitlin Bristow, Jim Harbaugh, Dick Enberg, and Randy Jackson. We've had some amazing guests stop by some of our shows, like Brian Cranston on Geffen Playhouse Unscripted, Julia Louis Dreyfus on All of the Above with Norman Lear, and Jason Bateman on Spike's Car Radio with Spike Ferriston. We are looking forward to a bright twenty eighteen with new shows coming online, like MySpace Tom Anderson, and we are welcoming back Dennis Miller to the podcast scene. This is Heather Dubrow. Happy holidays! Cheers. I'm Caitlin Bristow, and I want to wish you happy holidays. Hey, guys, it's Kelsey Knight from the Lady Gang. Happy holidays. We'll see you in the new year. From all of us here at Podcast One, we want to wish you a very happy holiday and a happy new year. At Farmers Insurance, we know the sound of a perfect hot air balloon landing. 
and a less than perfect one. Seen it, covered it. Click for more. We are farmers. Bum, 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 bum. Underwritten by Farmers Truck Fire Insurance, Exchanges and Affiliates. Products not available in every state. At the border, I'm Ed Donahue with an AP News Minute. At the roundtable discussion today in San Antonio, Texas, President Trump heard something he said he never heard before about life along the border. Many people are dying, and the danger of living here, unless you know exactly what you're doing, is tremendous. This is Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. Where are the people in Washington to stand up for these children, these women, these senior citizens? Where are they? Bring them down. Mr. President, let the Democrats come down to Brooks County. Let them come to any of these ranches. Let them see these bodies. Let them see the skeletons. We have the photographs. Attorney General William Barr says he thinks spying did occur on Donald Trump's presidential campaign, suggesting the origins of the Russia investigation may have been mishandled. Scientists released the first image ever made of a black hole, revealing a fiery ring of gravity-twisted light swirling around the edge of the abyss. One scientist said science fiction has become science fact. I'm Ed Donahue.